Father, we do thank you for tonight once again to be here and to open your word together. We praise you for what we have learned thus far in our study of the Gospel of Luke. We we just want to highlight you. We want to exalt you. We want to praise you. We want to learn from you, be like you. So challenge us even tonight in our own lives as well as in how we think about the gospel, how we think about the truth uh, that we share with others and uh, how to think about life itself in light of our own Christianity and how we interact with others. Thank you for this morning, our time we learned through Ephesians. May you be honored through it all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to have us turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. What I want to speak about tonight is probably one of the most familiar stories in the entire Bible. It's one we've heard uh, from our youngest days. If we've grown up in the church at all, we know it well. Possibly we've even told uh, it to others and talked about it to others. And so here in Luke chapter 10 is where we find ourselves, and it's where we're going to spend our time tonight. And it is the story that we know, or that we like to call, the story of the Good Samaritan. Story of the Good Samaritan. I think after tonight, you probably won't call it that anymore. Um, Not because that's a bad title per se, but I think it doesn't get to the whole point. And hopefully we'll see that as we go. So if you follow along with me, I want to read for us beginning in verse 25 because we finished last time in verse 24. And I want to go to verse 25 and read from there all the way down to verse 37. The lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, well, who then is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, came to him, bandaged up his wounds, poured oil and wine on them, and he put put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell into the robber's hand? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Most of the time when this passage is spoken about or when it's referred to in any kind of context, at least in our world, it is referred to concerning what I read from verse 30 to verse 37. And although what most people say about the character of the helpful human who is a Samaritan is true, What we know of him seems to be exactly what the text indicates. We need to understand that that is not the emphasis of this passage. This is not a passage about a good Samaritan. 
the reference to the Good Samaritan is only part, as you saw when I read it, part of the dialogue, but it's obviously not the whole story. <clears throat> now, before we really begin to look into the dynamics of this passage, I, I need to just lay some groundwork for us again so that we can frame our understanding as we have over the past several months in our study. <clears throat> because here, as you understand, being with us for the study of Luke, Christ is in the midst of his final months of his ministry on this earth. It is really just before the shadow of the cross that will become a painful reality in short order. You remember back in chapter 9 and verse 43, Jesus had predicted his death and he had been going through towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, sending out, even as we saw last time, the 70 who had gone out to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to all these other places. And each place that Jesus went, there were Jewish leadership. There were religious people. There were scribes and Pharisees, not only there to hear what Jesus said, but they typically had an intent in their heart, and that was to take his life on as a blasphemous charge against him. Whatever he was saying, they wanted to catch him in some kind of trouble. If you were with us years ago when we studied through the Gospel of John, or you've read through the Gospel of John any time recently, you know that John in chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And they picked up stones wanting to kill him, right? That was him claiming and saying that he was exactly who he said he was, God in the flesh. And the Pharisees couldn't handle that kind of supposed religious arrogance, that kind of blasphemy. So they continued to try to catch Jesus in something whereby they could accuse him as a blasphemer. They continually tried to charge him and confront him and engage him in public theological debate in hopes that they would somehow find a way to trip him up and hang that he would hang himself really on his words before the crowds and the crowds would begin to find a disdain in Jesus. And so this is where we are really in the text. A certain lawyer has come to test Jesus. That's what verse 25 says. He came and stood up and put him to the test. He, he may have been one that even the 70 had gone out and shared the gospel with. He had heard the gospel, and he had heard their proclamation of life in Jesus Christ. Now he wants to put Jesus to the test. Now, this isn't some special lawyer. This isn't some guy who's the highest lawyer in town. He was just one of the many Jewish law experts. He was one who knew all of the requirements of the Mosaic law. In society, he would have been known as a doctor of law. And his business was really a threefold business that he was involved in or duties that he had to do. His job was to study and interpret the law both morally and socially for the people, so he would understand the Mosaic Law, at least as a secular, unsaved person could understand it, and he would give, therefore, an understanding to the people so that they could live by that. That's why there's so many extra rules that the Jews came up with, because they found they couldn't even keep the, the Law of the Ten Commandments. So his job was to then understand the law, but over time became gradually to expand the large to a larger amount of common law, their interpretations of the law that would add traditions that the people would have to follow. So that was one part of his job. But the second part of his job was to teach the law to the Hebrew youth, to the young kids, to the, like you see in our day and age, the college kids who get so goofed up by foolish professors. Those who were the renowned rabbis would always gather a company of students around them whose business it was to repeat what their teachers were telling them. And uh, they would quote law formulas until they had passed 
the test or till it had really become part of them. That was the idea. So the law that these lawyers taught was part of their very life, and they, they saw to it that others knew the law in the same way. And then lastly, this lawyer would have possibly been called upon by the people to actually decide civil cases in the courts, to act as an advisor in the courts, much like lawyers do in our day and age today. <clears throat> so this is the kind of person that we find here in this text. He's an expert in the moral and civil law, at least as it was given to them by Moses, at least how they understood it. And he was an expert in all the traditions of the Jewish leaders. And he, he knew that because of his own study and because of his own upbringing. So he was a modern day scholar of his time. And so he was going to put Jesus to the test. So here in this passage, he approaches Jesus and he has a series of questions that he hopes to ask in order to expose Jesus. That's what the word test is all about. He wants to expose Jesus and possibly show him to be the fraud that this lawyer actually believes he is. So the real motive, he isn't interested in understanding anything from Christ. His motive really is just exposing him to be false. And so his question here isn't really a genuine question in one sense of, hey, tell me what I need to know. He already believes he just needs to follow the law. And so his question is loaded trying to catch Christ. But instead of Jesus learning from him, as we will see, Jesus takes this lawyer back to law school. So it's here in this text that Jesus really answers this man's questions, and he does it by using two proofs to reveal to him that his system of works righteousness, his system of entry into eternity through effort, must be either absolutely perfect if you're going to inter inherit eternal life, or it's only going to damn you to hell. So Jesus wants this lawyer, and he wants all who ever read this text to understand, to realize the implications of what the prophet Habakkuk had said. Cursed is anyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So all things is the issue, and Jesus proofs come in the form of answers that he gives to this lawyer. Proof number one is simply this. The lawyer demands the law, I should say this, the law demands perfect obedience. This is Jesus' answer. Verse 25 through 28. He stands up to test Jesus. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? You tell me what the law says. That's Jesus' answer. And he answers Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He, he quotes the reality of the vertical issue between man and God, that, that we have a vertical problem, like we said this morning, and that needs to be dealt with. You need to have a love for God, a love for Him with your whole heart, your whole soul, and all your strength, with all your mind. All of yourself needs to be engaged in a love with God, and then the outflow of that is love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, if you have a relationship with God that's right, you'll have a relationship with your neighbor that's right. And so Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. Good job, lawyer. You're passing the test. Do this, and you will live. Do this, and you will live. All of Christ's answers and all the implications from his answers hinge on that first question. Everything in this text hinges on the lawyer's question. What? shall I do to inherit eternal life? That is the, the crux of the issue. 
So this isn't about a good Samaritan. This passage is about a man who is thinking about life and eternity and saying, in trying to catch Jesus as a fraud and saying, what must I do? Tell me, teacher, what it is I must do to have eternal life. And I don't believe this lawyer had any intention of finding out something new. He was a teacher of the law. He knew better than any, at least from an intellectual standpoint, what the law said. And of course, he actually believed in his own humanity, as many do today, that he could in fact attain to some kind of eternal life if he just followed the letter of the law. If I just do what I teach, then I'll be okay classic mindset, really, of our own time. Salvation by works. Salvation by effort. So the lawyer is wrapping himself in this thin guise of self-righteousness when he asks the question, what must I do? In other words, he's asking, teacher, tell me what part of the law am I missing? What part of the law must I work on? What people ask today, tell me what God accepts. What must I do? How much do I do it? What pile of righteousness is going to be enough? It's fascinating to me because in response to this, our Lord asks this lawyer a question which drives his proof home. He asks him in verse 26, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? I love this. This is something we could learn in our own talking with people who like to ask a lot of questions that want to take us down rabbit trails that make no sense to anything. It's just a distraction to just simply ask them questions. Answer their question with a question. Jesus says, what does it say? I mean, you're an expert in the law. That's, that's really what he's saying in a somewhat sarcastic fashion. What's written in the law? How does it read to you? Tell me what it says. In other words, you're the lawyer. You're the self-proclaimed expert. You tell me. Doesn't it strike you funny that Jesus didn't just tell the man to believe on him and he'd have eternal life? I mean, this sounds like a, an opportune evangelistic opportunity here. Here's a guy who comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus a question. Jesus knows what's going on in his omniscience. And the teacher says, what must I do? to?" Have? I mean, if we had somebody come up to us and say, what must I do to have eternal life? I mean, we'd start barking, right? Well, here's what you got to do. You got to repent of your sins. You got to you know, you have a relationship with God and you know, all these other kinds of things. We go on. Jesus just says, no, he doesn't do that. Jesus knows what's going on. He doesn't say to the man, you can't do anything. What you need to do is believe in me. I don't think he said that because Christ knew that the man would not accept it. You see, there was and is nothing wrong with the law. Nothing wrong with the law. The problem comes with his understanding of the law. He says he's an expert in the law, but he doesn't even understand the law that he's an expert in. Jesus told us in Matthew 23, verses 1 through 4, that these men place themselves in the seat of Moses. Therefore, he says, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. The law wasn't the problem. Their understanding of its purpose was flawed. And so Jesus asked this lawyer to summarize the law. What does it say? What's written in it? How does it read to you? Every Jew, every Jew knew that the greatest commandment was found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the great Shema passage. This lawyer was no exception. In fact, he said each Sabbath in the synagogue he rehearsed that. That's what was said in the synagogue. The first 
of the law, the greatest commandment. So the lawyer begins to answer our Lord in verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. He just, he's just regurgitating his synagogue procedure. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, of course, said in other places in the Gospels on these two commandments, depend the whole law and the prophets, Matthew 22, verse 34 to 40. Upon these two, the whole law and prophets hang, and Christ responds to this lawyer by peeling back, really, the first layer of his self-righteousness. He says, you have answered correctly. And so he goes right back to the lawyer's question. When the lawyer says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered him, you've answered correctly, do this. And you will live. If that's how you want to gain eternal life, if that's how you think eternal life is to be gained, then here's what you need to do. What is that? The law requires impeccable obedience. The law requires perfect obedience. You're right. That is the greatest commandment. That is the secondary commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Your answer is correct, but the trouble with this plan is that of obtaining eternal life by your own strength. The reality is you can never live up to your spirit, these spiritual requirements of the law. One slip in any direction on anything, no matter how small, and you are an absolute failure. Jesus, in answer to this lawyer, is just simply quoting Leviticus 18.5, saying the answer of the law is this, if you would attain to eternal life by the keeping of the law, then keep the law. Do it and live. Keep on doing it and live. Without fail, do it and live. In other words, love God with your whole heart, that is in your inner being. Love God with your whole soul, that is your whole life principle. Love God with your whole strength, that is all of your capability. And with your whole mind, all of your reasoning, so in every way, in your inner being, in your life principle, in your capabilities, in your mind, in all of your reasoning, love God and then love your neighbor as yourself and do it habitually without fail. In other words, if you want to be justified under the law, then you have to be perfect. Apostle Paul said it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, when he quotes Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Paul says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. All over the Old Testament was the reality that if you fail at one point, you fail the whole thing. The law, although being holy, although being righteous, although being just, had never been given to produce salvation. It only was given to reveal the reality of sin and our utter inability to keep it. So it's not obedience to the law that rewards a man with eternal life because no man is perfect. Remember years ago when my kids were small, we lived in Ohio. I was talking about this passage with them and I wanted to try to explain it to, to them, and I began to tell them of this lawyer and the answer that was given to Jesus by him and the subsequent answer that Jesus gave to this lawyer about that. And one of my sons said to me, I don't remember which one it was, whether it was Trevor Austin, I'm not sure. Dad, nobody can do that. And I quickly asked him why he had said that. He said, nobody's perfect. You see, humans today use that as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Right? God wouldn't require that of me because, after all, nobody's perfect. 
And yet here is God in the flesh speaking with a human who wants to justify himself by the keeping of the law, by external righteous deeds. And Jesus says to him, if you want eternal life that way, then you must be perfect. Nobody's perfect. That should be the response of the lawyer. But it wasn't. So, it was at this point that the expert in the law becomes uneasy. If I were this lawyer, beads of sweat would begin to form on my forehead as Jesus begins to probe a little deeper because Jesus says, all right, you know what the law says. Now do it. and Do it without fail. You answered correctly. Do this and you will live. This is where it gets uncomfortable, particularly for any of us who are trying to gain heaven by keeping some set of rules, because the rules demand us to do it persistently and perfectly. If you want to be saved by your works, by law keeping, then you must be saved by keeping the whole law. You cannot fail in any one point. You cannot do it most of the time. You have to do it all the time. And not most of its commands, all of its commands. And so here is a man standing in his own blinded pride, trying to put our Lord on the defensive, and now he's the one on the spot. And so, trying to wiggle himself out, the lawyer, in an attempt to extricate himself from this position, to find justification for himself, verse 29 says, he asks a second question. Who then is my neighbor? In answer to the first question, Jesus says, yep, you've answered right, so do that and live. He already knows he hasn't done that right, and so he tries to squirm his way out to the lowest common denominator. Okay, tell me the second part, since you already challenged me on the first part, and I know without admitting it that you know that I don't do that perfectly, then tell me, who's my neighbor? Literally, and who am I to be a neighbor to, is what the text actually says in the original language. Who am I to be a neighbor to? So Jesus builds on this first proof that if you're going to live by the law, you better be perfect. And he answers the man's second question with a second proof. In other words, he's unmasking the false righteousness of this lawyer by telling him in proof number one, the law demands perfect obedience. The law demands impeccable adherence, or you will suffer the fate of eternal hell. And then he builds on that with proof number two, by saying the reality is you have substandard adherence at best. Not only do you have substandard adherence to the first part, you have substandard adherence at best to the second. And so verse 30 through 37 is an illustration. That's what it is. An illustration to illustrate this point to him, that his adherence to the law and to the great two commandments is at best substandard. In the Old Testament, the relationship of neighbor involved both moral and social obligations. And both of those were frequently emphasized. There were special injunctions not to bear false witness against the neighbor. Exodus 20, verse 16, or Deuteronomy 5, 20. Even in Proverbs 25, verse 18, it says that. Or you couldn't in any way deal falsely with him. You could not defraud him. You could not frame malice against him. You could not even harbor evil thoughts against him. Exodus 20, verse 17. Leviticus 6, 2. Deuteronomy 23, 24. Psalm 15, verse 3. Proverbs 24, 28. All of those speak to that issue. So you can't bear false witness against your neighbor. You can't deal with him falsely in any kind of way. You can't defraud him, frame malice against him, or even have a hateful thought against him. 
nor could you lead him to any shameful conduct. You couldn't wrong him by having an affair with his wife. And the supreme law that undergirded those injunctions was the Mosaic law given by God that said you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Now in the context of that verse in Leviticus 19 verse 18, a neighbor is defined as the children of my people. The children of my people. In other words, it meant one related by blood or or nationality, a fellow countryman, someone who was your own compatriot, someone who was part of your very people. In fact, some conduct that was prohibited between fellow Jews was permitted toward foreigners. Deuteronomy 23, verse 19 through 20 kind of gives you that idea. I'm not going into all these Old Testament texts because it would take us too long. So before you get too hard on this guy and go, man, this guy's really a wicked guy, we have to know that he was asking from the context of his own time. In Jewish society, both Samaritans and Greeks were considered outsiders. We saw, even this morning, the trouble that was brought on because of their thinking about one another. So they were despised for racial reasons, they were despised for religious reasons, and Christ, the one who came to abolish the law, nor not to abolish it, but to fulfill it, as we saw this morning, is taking this lawyer to the true meaning of the law. So he sets up a contrast in the story between those who were the religious leaders, those who knew the law and were to be the examples for the people, and this Samaritan whom Christ knew this lawyer would never want to accept. Samaritans were half-breed Jews. They were the products of Jews that intermingled with Gentile nations. And so what is Jesus doing? Jesus is contrasting the selective mercy of the Jews in the outworking of their supposed love for God by keeping His law with the universal mercy of this one whom they hated, the Samaritan. Let's look at this passage together. Jesus replies in verse 30 and says, A man was going down from Jerusalem, in answering his question, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. They stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, that means similar to, and by chance, there was a priest, and by chance, then likewise, a Levite also was going down that road. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, notice, who was on a journey, he came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, came to him, bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, took care of him. I mean, the contrast is massive. The next day, he takes out two denarii, gives it to the innkeeper and says, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I'll repay you. Well, Jesus makes it clear that the first two travelers, the priest and the Levite, are Jewish He also makes it patently clear that the hero of the story is the Samaritan. We're not told the racial origins of the victim. We don't have any of that here. We just know he's a victim. You ever wonder sometimes your Bible says, why didn't God tell us that? Why didn't God tell us about the guy's makeup, whether he was a Samaritan or whether he wasn't a Samaritan? Uh, My guess, he's probably a Jew in the story. Who knows? That would even heighten the sense of it. But I always think, why didn't God tell us? Well, there's one simple reason why God tells us. It doesn't matter. 
doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he's a Jew. It doesn't matter if he's a Gentile. It really doesn't matter. Verse 30 indicates the only thing that matters about this man is one thing that we're told about him, that he's badly hurt and he's in need of help. That's what God says. This is the story. This is all you need to know. There's a man who has fallen among these robbers. They've stripped him and beat him and left him half dead. He's been mugged. Robbers have taken what he has. They've beaten him badly. And they've left him in the road without a care. He's half dead already. So the man needs help. And he needs it badly. That's what matters. That's what the text tells us. Didn't matter whether he was a Jew, didn't matter whether he was a Gentile. For the sake of this illustration that Jesus is using, he's just a man in desperate need. In other words, there's a human being here lying by the road who is seriously wounded and who desperately needs help. In the next few verses, the we're told the two of Judaism's finest characters come upon this injured man. And they come upon him by chance. Why? Because they're not on a journey. They're just probably heading back home to the place where they lived after being in Jerusalem for their time of service, their duty. They would go. There was an enclave of priests that lived in Jericho, and oftentimes they would go to Jerusalem that way and go back. It wasn't a very safe road to take. There were always problems on this road. At least history tells us that. <clears throat> but here are the two finest of Jewish specimens coming upon this injured man, and they make their way along the same road. The priest comes to the injured man, and he is the first to see him. He could see the man lying by the side of the road. As he approaches, <clears throat> he's going down the same road, and rather than get involved, he just deliberately walks on the other side of the road, so as to not get too close to the man who is the battered victim. The Levite, who is just another part of the priestly line, is no different than the priest. He comes upon this injured man sometime after the priest. We don't know how long. It doesn't tell us how long. His actions are virtually just a replay of the same thing. These are two who knew the law, two who are living by the law, two would have claimed the same thing the lawyer's claiming, two who would have said, we love the Lord our God with our whole heart, with our mind, our strength. We love Him, and we love our neighbors ourselves. They're, they would have given the same answers, and rather than get involved, the priest deliberately walks by, and so does the Levite. He passes by the suffering man, on the other side, so that he would not feel obligated to do anything to help him. And so you come to the next verse. At this point in the story, the Samaritan comes on the scene. And the Samaritan, unlike the priest and the Levite, has a reason for the journey he's on. That's why the text says he was on a journey. They weren't on a journey. They're just passing from one job to another. He's on a journey. Uh, ostensibly, he's a traveling guy who needed to go somewhere for some kind of task. In fact, he tells the innkeeper, whenever I return, I'll repay you. So somehow he was going out to make whatever money he needed to in order to survive for his life. He's on a journey. He is the only one who has some kind of earthly reason to not get involved with a situation that's going to hold him up on his journey. If anyone could excuse himself from getting involved, it could have been that guy. He was attending to business. When he sees the man lying by the road, he responds in a very different manner. The Samaritan is not like the other two religious Jews. He felt compassion for the victim, verse 33 says. In fact, he drew near to the victim. Rather than pass on the other side, he went on the side of the road where the guy was. He treats the man's wounds. He bandages them up. He pours ointment on them and wine on them, which was to take care of any kind of infection that might take place. 
He places the wounded man on his own donkey that ostensibly he was probably riding on, and he brings him to an inn where he spends the night caring for the man. This is the man who was on a journey, going somewhere, had plans, he had direction, he he knew what he needed to do. The other two had none of that, and he takes his time to care for this man, even though the Samaritan had to go out and continue As it tells us later, he didn't let that keep him from providing care for this man. Paid the victim's room in advance. In fact, when it says to the innkeeper that he gave, took out two denarium and gave them to the innkeeper, some historians believe that was two months worth of rent. Two months. He saw to it that the innkeeper was taken care of as well as the man who was to stay in the inn because he paid the man ahead of time and then promised to return and fully reimburse the innkeeper for any additional expenses that might occur. This is going above and beyond. This man did everything he could to minister to the man on whom he had compassion. You see, Jesus wanted this lawyer to know The relationship in life is more than moral and physical. They're not based on kinship alone. Rather, they're on the opportunity and the capacity to love your neighbor as yourself, even if that neighbor is your enemy. That's what Jesus is implying with his last question. He answers the lawyer in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hand? Who do you think proved to be the neighbor? Literally, it says, which one of these three do you think showed themselves to be a neighbor? Not not which one of these was a neighbor by kinship to the man, but rather which one showed a heart-filled love for God that was seen through the loving deed of helping this man who was in desperate need. That's really the question. Which one, of the, which one of these actually proved to be a lover of God with their whole heart, mind, and strength because he helped this man? Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what the Pharisees taught. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Loving one's neighbor as oneself is not to be interpreted as if it implied that we are to hate our enemy. In other words, hating your enemy was loving your neighbor. No. The love of a human who truly knows God should be divine and impartial. Reflect Jesus Christ. It's impartial. It should have all men for its object. I think there's a a monumental and fundamental difference between our Lord's way of salvation and that which this Jew is trying to attain. Our Lord's way was that of grace. Our Lord's way is that of faith. Faith in a sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Judaism's way, or the works righteousness way, is the way of law-keeping. Impossible as it might be. If a man actually supposed that he earned eternal life by his good works, by keeping the law, then it's no wonder that he would be proud and self-righteous. And he would say, 
I can't deal with that man. It might defile me. It might take away my salvation. It might hinder my salvation. Salvation for them, eternal life, was a result of what they did. They couldn't defile themselves by getting involved in someone else's life. They looked at the suffering as those who suffer due to their own sin. The reason this guy's suffering is all because he's just a sinner. I can't mess with that. They looked upon the affluent as those who had lifted themselves up by their own doing, by their own efforts. No wonder they had no compassion on this man. No wonder they had no compassion for his sickness. Reminder of even Jonah. Jonah the prophet wanted to watch the people of Nineveh be burned to a crisp by the wrath of God, even the little children and the animals. Just go to Jonah chapter 4. It's right there. Jonah was angry that God allowed them to repent. Self-righteousness is just a subsidiary of legalism. It's the mortal enemy of compassion and mercy. Grace, on the other hand, that's the mother of compassion. Remember what Jesus said to Simon when he came into his home? Simon the Pharisee and the sinner lady was there, the one who was wiping his feet with her hair and tears. Simon was upset about that. And Jesus said to Simon, Simon, ever since I came into your house, you've done nothing for me. You haven't anointed my head with oil. She's washing my feet with her tears. You haven't done any of these kinds of things. He says, Simon, he whom is forgiven much loves much. Real love for God always manifests itself in a real love for our neighbors. This is the point that Jesus is making. This is the point that we ought to get in our own minds as we think about this text. And never think about it as if it's about a good Samaritan. This text is about a Christian. Because a true love for God manifests manifests itself in a true love for one another. Those who really love God with their whole heart, those who are actually saved because God saves them, manifest themselves in a love for others, regardless of what it might take. Let me just say one more thing before we finish. The lawyer was steeped in the things of religion. He was a very religious guy. He knew all of the right steps to take in the law. No missteps. He even seemed to have enjoyed intellectualizing about the truth of God's Word. He enjoyed getting into conversation about the things of the law. He tried to keep the discussion scholarly even detached from life. Tell me what I must do, teacher. Jesus didn't allow that to go that way. He didn't allow this man to deal with the truth of God's Word in some kind of academic test tube. Jesus wouldn't define the term neighbor by doing a Hebrew word study. Jesus defined it by telling a story. Jesus wouldn't allow the lawyer, and he will not allow us to deliberate and pass judgment as to whether someone else is our neighbor. We can't ask the question, how close to the line do I need to get before I cross the line? Jesus doesn't let us even ask the question. He challenges us to ask ourselves whether or not we are good neighbors to those who are in need. You say you love God, how do you love one another? It's a reminder to us, like Jesus said to Peter on the beach after he rose from the dead, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? You know I do. Then tend my lambs. If you love me, Peter, you'll do what I'm asking. 
That's what the truth of God's Word is for. To be rightly understood so that we rightly live it. God doesn't want us to give Him some textbook definition of loving our neighbor. He doesn't want us to think that we are saved if there's no fruit. Christ's desire is that we demonstrate our love for Him by our love for one another. In a real world setting, by showing compassion to one in need, just like He has to us. See, if we say we're saved, if we say we believe in Jesus Christ, then we have to ask the question, have you been trying to keep the law? Falsely thinking that you're okay? And so you ask God, just how much do I have to apply? How much of this do I actually have to do? We need to be aware that sometimes we can intellectualize the truth. We need to beware of keeping the Word of God in some kind of classroom academic setting. If we know Christ, then let us live out the grace of God that we've experienced by loving others as God has loved us. So Jesus says to the man in verse 37, as the man says to him, the one who showed mercy toward him, and Jesus said, you go and you do the same. You see, lawyer, you say you know God. You say you're headed to eternal life, but I'm telling you, you're far from it because you won't even touch that kind of You want to gain eternal salvation by doing things, you've got to be perfect. <clears throat> and none of us will ever be perfect. So God sent His Son who fulfilled the whole law and made a way for us by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this passage the richness of it, the sweetness of it, the, the blinding, piercing light, the sharpness of it, the way it divides down even to the thoughts and intentions of our heart. As we go back and forth in our own minds thinking to ourselves, how could this guy do that? And then we find in our own actions that we do the very same thing at times. Lord, help us to see what we've been given by You, knowing that we've been forgiven much. And in doing so, we'll love much. Thank You for this example. Edit our lives to the glory of Your name. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.